This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Familiars! Primaries! Alchemy! And the two-party system. where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no good we get up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Murder of Crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, so let's ask Ken and Robin. Michael Shreves asks Ken and Robin, do you have any advice for using familiars? In a cool, narrative, symbiotic way. And thanks, Michael Shreves, for assuming that we are cool, narrative, and symbiotic, which I think is not a, not a huge assumption on your part, but it still I think feels that can nice. can be taken as read. It can be, but it's nice when Michael not only takes it as read, but then reads it back to us. We do like affirmations here on the podcast. Yes, we do. So I have, it, here's how I would do it. Let's, let's, I actually have an idea. So why don't we start with that? Yeah, let's start um, with you. What the heck? The cool thing about having a familiar, uh, is I would argue getting to play that familiar so that it's your uh, character away from your character when he's off doing recon. And so that you, uh, it's not a mistake, but you're leaving fun on the table by as GM playing their familiar and reporting back as to what it uh, sees and so forth. And so uh, you are now playing uh, when your hawk goes off to uh, do an aerial recon or your rat goes down into the sewer or the cool little demon guy that you got if you uh, pretended to roll a hundred in uh, AD&D uh, goes off to go do little imp demon things that the player still gets to make decisions and you're still describing what the familiar is seeing from their point of view, but you're as GM describing things from a rat's perspective or a eagle's or whatever. So, uh, you know, you would 
talk to the about the eagle being distracted by prey animals or the rat by delicious garbage and so forth. And so uh, it, it's another little character that you get to play for a little while. And I think that's the most possible uh, fun uh, you can uh, get out of that. Ken, what do you think? I think that you're right. And I think that another thing that a familiar can give you is a way for you to sort of give a player character an extra shot at noticing something or an extra shot at responding to something. So the player character is, um, uh, you know, rolls badly and the vampires mind controlled them. And so now you're like, uh, you're sitting on the shoulder of Dagmar the wise and he's staring at that corpse like really fixedly and not like he wants to eat to eat its eyes, which would make sense. Uh, what, what, what do you, what do you think you're going to do there? Uh, good old familiar, uh, Hawk, you know? And so they get like a chance to say, Oh, I'm going to fly up and attack the, the vampire with my claws. And that, so, and that sort of lets them have, you know, an extra little, uh, padding of capability, which is what the familiar does. So you can use the familiar as a second piece of perspective, not just in recon, which I guess is the most common time to use your familiar, but also, you know, in times of uh, combat or stress where the main character is either impaired or has been, um, uh, or has blown a role and you want, or you feel reasonably that the familiar would have noticed something. And so you can, you can always pop back and forth to that familiar and, and suddenly ask them to start responding as the familiar. And it, it, and you can even do that when they might rather do something else. And it's like, nope, sorry, this is the downside of being a familiar. Your consciousness really is in two places. And right now the, um, uh, your, your monkey familiar's reflexes are way better than yours. So the monkey's going to get to go first. And even when it's just an ordinary situation and you're not, you haven't, as a player, called on your familiar or sent them off to do things, it can still be fun as GM to look for ways to cue in pieces of the environment through the familiar's point of view. So you uh, might, for example, if the character uh, has a, a lie uh, detection ability, you know, the, the BS detector that we have in Gumshoe, for example, and uh, you most times you might have the, you know, the player say, oh, well, you sent something skeevy about that guy. But if they have a familiar, it's like, oh, your cat really doesn't like that guy. Or the your imp senses that there's uh, some uh, aura of sin hanging over him. And it's really the player's ability that's being drawn on, but you're describing it through the point of view of the familiar, therefore making that observation cooler and reminding everybody that the familiar is part of your character and and part of the, the cool stuff that you do. So, you know, if you could have the rats skitter up the side of the bookshelf and then knock down the copy of the book that uh, you need to find the map where the ghouls are, for example. Yeah, you can also have, uh, and this depends a little more on player buy-in, but you can have the familiar's nature bleed back a little bit into the player character. So you're all, you all enter the, the, the vaults of the orc castle and you look around and, oh, look, there's uh, some tasty food that the orcs have, have uh, left behind. Uh, uh, Dagmar. And so Dagmar says, Oh, I'm, I'm going to go eat the tasty food. And then you t- tell the other players, um, Dagmar's eating garbage right now. What's up with Dagmar? And what that is, is that Dagmar's rat familiar is just bled a little bit back into Dagmar. And so he's responding in the way that his familiar might. And that, you know, you don't want to take that too far. You don't want to say, Oh, I can fly because I'm an, I'm a hawk and he topples to his death. But maybe having a little of the back channel, because again, a player with a familiar, especially if they picked it rather than rolled it off of a table is saying, I picked a cat familiar because I like the way cats respond. And I want to encounter this universe in a more cat like way. So why not 
have that, you know, the fact that that's your totem animal or your, or your, or your fetish beast, uh, say something about your personality. Of course, you're, you're finicky and, uh, and special and vain because a cat is your, is your, uh, totem, right? That just makes sense. Right. And you can implement that in a couple of ways. One way is you, it could be basically like sort of a willpower role that you have to make when you encounter a, a situation that would tempt a cat. So that when you come across a mouse, your uh, temptation to dart across the room and grab it is uh, just as interesting if you don't give into it. So if you make your willpower roll or whatever the equivalent is in whatever system you're using, and you still have the idea there that you were momentarily tempted to go and do that thing, but most of the time it's an easy roll to make and only if you uh, get a really terrible roll are you going to actually pounce on the mouse because then that's you know, takes a cool thing and makes it, uh, uh, hose you over, but it's cool to be tempted and then not do it. Another possibility is that you have to act in a, uh, way commensurate with the behavior of your familiar in order to maintain your link to that familiar, that you can't just go for adventure after adventure, not ever referring to the fact that you have a hawk on your shoulder and then suddenly call on the hawk. You have to somehow go, you have to do a hawk thing, uh, that is satisfying to the hawk god or to the uh, great hawk spirit in order to keep that link viable. And if you neglect it and you don't want to, again, you don't want to turn this into, you know, another annoying thing of bookkeeping, but that, for example, uh, when there's a sort of a longer, a pause in the adventure where you're asking all the players, hey, what do you do next while you're in the uh village and everybody's gone off in their separate directions and one guy's buying a sword and the other person is chasing down a lead and if the character with the familiar doesn't have anything to do then you can prompt them as gm and say okay it's about time to uh propitiate the cat uh god with a, a a feline action what do you choose to do and it gives them a little moment and again keeps that alive in the in the storyline yeah the notion of taking the familiar and driving character behavior with it. Like I said before, you you need to have character buy-in. And I think what you don't want to do is get into a position, I mean, where you say roll your willpower, if willpower is a declining resource, or even if the player feels like, well, I've only got so much luck in these dice, I would, unless it is actually being amplified by something about, like, the room is full of magic or a druid is attacking you or something, you always have the temptation to go chase that mouse or lick yourself instead of uh, pay attention. But you, the GM can just say, you feel like chasing that mouse, and then the player can say, I'm not going to chase the mouse. And you still have the moment, if you wanted to, to roleplay it a little bit, but you didn't expend any resources. I think that unless you're in a situation where a familiar is expected enough that you can legitimately also make it a genuine detriment to have a familiar, uh, and I'm over and above the, if oh, if someone catches your rat and stomps on it, you take damage which is legitimate but the uh but the sort of you know oh because of this you're cut you're constrained from certain behaviors that makes more sense if you're in a rune quest sort of situation where all the party have totem animals or or uh fetish beasts or whatever they've some sort of shamanic game where everyone has some sort of animal spirit they're always communing with as opposed to the one guy with a familiar now has an extra vector for being hit on uh by the universe i think that sort of goes against the intent of the rules to provide no, a familiar is a cool thing. It's a Benny. It's, it, it'd be like saying, well, now that you know fireball, you're going to catch on fire more often. That seems a little, a little hosey to me as a GM. And it might seem even more hosey to the player <laughs> if you wind up doing it to them too much. So right. make it has sure to that- be something that, that 
uh, is more threat than realization in that if the threat happens, it's not something humiliating or disastrous, but it's something that uh, enables you to be sort of more in tune with the uh, creature you've chosen. And you can sort of tell from what the player selects as their familiar, how much chaos they want associated with their familiar. For example, if you're, if you're picking a cat, your familiar is going to be kind of a jerk and that's what you want to have happen. And you might want that to be licensed to be somewhat cat-like to the rest of the party. That comes into the other issue of your familiar becomes a disadvantage to everyone else. (laughs) Um, uh, Or, you know, if you, if you have a monkey familiar, obviously you have hijinks in mind. You want Mm -hmm. uh, monkey hijinks to occur. Whereas if you have a a majestic uh, eagle, you probably uh, want to be majestic all the time and don't want to have any uh, reversals. Whereas again, if you've got a, a weird slug-like demon that uh, uh, hides in your pocket, uh, you want that uh, to be realized uh, in a way that uh, may uh, cause some uh, disorder along the way. Another way you can utilize uh, familiars uh, within the game is if you are, um, uh, if you go into a dream realm or you, or you eat uh, magic mushrooms or whatever, you can, you'll, you'll take on the, the physical form of your familiar. So everyone else in the dream realm is themselves, but you are a giant cat or an awesome eagle or a cool slug demon or whatever. And, uh, make sure that the familiar also, because he's connected to you by magic, has, uh, he's more sensitive to magic in the way that his animal nature might also be sensitive. So your cat demon or your cat familiar, the hair on his, uh, on his tail might club out. If you enter a place of, of dark magic, you have not sensed dark magic. You don't even know that it is dark magic, but you know that your, your cat demon is, your cat familiar rather is all, um, uh, is all tense and irritated because his cat senses and his cat behavior have sort of twigged to this, uh, this thing that's happening. If you can get the player to be looking to their familiar as a source of feedback and information about the world in all other situations where you might as well just as opposed to the situations, rather, where you might just as well have a drone, right? You know, where a familiar is really just a a, a little uh, UAV that you're flying around. You ideally want the familiar to ha- to feel like magic in the sense that it is connected to a larger, numinous world, and that it provides the the string or the cord that connects you to that larger, numinous world as well. And uh, one way to do that is to uh, do some quick research on what the sensory abilities of that creature are, and describe everything in those terms, so that you know, the eagle is all uh, visual, whereas the, the rat is all focused on uh, smells and uh, uh, the movement of air. And if you can, if, if the animal has a sense that humans don't have, that's uh, a really uh, sort of great gift. On a less narrative and more tactical level, I think it's fun to be able to use your familiar as a spell focus so that the uh, cat who goes... Uh, into the uh, secret headquarters of the bad guys can be the uh, focal point of your fireball spell rather than you. And so that enables uh, you to sort of think creatively about uh, the, uh, the animal and it might uh, you might get a bonus if you can figure out a, a thing to do that is particularly uh, like that uh, creature. So maybe cats don't want to cast fireballs. They don't want to get their whiskers singed. Uh, but your salamander does, and the cat may be, you know, better at uh, casting a silent spell and so or forth. Or sleep. <laughs> or sleep, yes. And Virgil so, is very good at casting a sleep spell. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, if there's a, uh interfere with typing spell, you know, yes, you're, you're off right. to the races. Yes, you are, you are nailed. The, if you're attempting to prevent the villains from completing their RPG supplement, then your cat familiar will come in very, very handy. Right. 
Uh, well, as soon as we're envisioning getting back to work and being prevented by cats, I think that we have uh, completed this segment and can move on to the next one. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, uh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope! Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft annotated by the MI6, and the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The primary colored bunting, the bounce of balloons, the thump of the... Band and the fall of confetti tell us we've entered the celebratory quadrennial precincts of the Politics Hut. And here in the Politics Hut, we stand currently on the snowy uh, slopes of New Hampshire. As you listen to our Politics Hut, you no doubt are in the fever swamps of South Carolina or possibly even elsewhere in the great American South. Uh, being all sweaty, not all snowy, but know that we are speaking literally on the eve of the New Hampshire primary. So if we did not say John Kazich enough for your, uh, news cravings, then, uh, know that we'll say it eventually and we won't be any happier then than we are now. Robin, what have you got to say? Right. So I, I decided this year to, uh, tie our hands behind our backs, uh, but, per but also at the same time, possibly, uh, protect ourselves from embarrassing uh, predictions uh, by uh, doing this on the uh, on the day of the New Hampshire primary. You'll be hearing this 10 days later. And that forces us to zoom out and look uh, more in general at the questions of how do you uh, watch the primaries? How do you, there's a lot of uh, nonsense uh, spouted uh, both by the press and by, of course, the candidates themselves. And that, uh, the second of those is because the voters demand it. Um, and, the uh, questions are, how do you separate the uh, 
transient uh, background nonsense from uh, what might actually be happening. And so uh, one of the first dictums that I will submit as to how to uh, watch the, the U.S. primary system is that alone among political events, there are so many stages of this and so much is based on uh, perception that it seems to be sort of a roller coaster ride. And the tendency is because now you've got, you know, possibly 20 to 30 different little mini events to predict before the, the big events is to assume that whatever is happening now will continue to happen. And that's always a bad guess to make in history. And the smaller the event and the more moving parts uh, in it, the, uh, the more difficult it is to correctly predict things. So uh, as we record this, we've been through Iowa and all of a sudden everything that is being predicted by the uh, punditocracy assumes that, or well, not everything, but a large chunk of it, assumes that the things that were established in Iowa, which is quite different from New Hampshire, will continue to happen. But we know that uh, things change rapidly, especially in the early days of a primary. So uh, beware, uh, particularly predictions that seem to assume that everything changed before, but now the, the course ahead of us is clear. Is there another uh, thing that you would advise people to uh, bear in mind as they watch the primaries? I think a lot of people, and this also includes the candidates because it has to, make the mistake of predicting a primary as though it has a larger bearing on the race. And so you could, for example, look at a situation uh, where the guy out of Iowa traditionally goes away and is never heard of again. But that's because the guys who win Iowa traditionally are very, very underfunded for a candidate because to win Iowa takes a very, a very particular set of, of appeals that are traditionally not found in a better funded candidate, uh, to, to be as big picture as possible. But when you have an Iowa winner who is well funded or who has a larger national infrastructure, then they may keep surprising you or they may just have a sort of, um, uh, a message that really resonates with a larger body of voters than you thought. Uh, for example, Mike Huckabee back in, uh, I believe it was 08 when he was, uh, all over the map and, and kept keeping on because he was appealing, uh, although we didn't know it at the time to the same sort of, uh, blue collar populist, uh, audience that Trump is appealing to now. So he had a, a, a base that was not just Southern evangelicals and people are like, why is he winning votes in Pennsylvania? That makes no sense. But it's because he was sort of a William Jennings Bryan of Republicans and appealed to that sort of an audience. And so you have to look at how well positioned the candidate is to move forward as opposed to look at the specific local primaries as well. So I guess this is sort of the reverse of what Robin was saying, that something that happened once might turn out to keep happening, even if people want to say, no, that never happened before. Right. Right. And and there are consistent things over the years, even though uh, really uh, the modern primary system really starts, what, in the early 70s? In 1972 is when it really starts, because that's when the McGovern reforms uh, come in uh, to the Democratic Party that say uh, we're not going to pick uh, our candidates by uh, smoky back rooms. We're going to have popular primaries in, in most of the states. Those popular primaries will assign most of the delegates. Uh, caucuses will become a thing of the past and uh, every state pretty much is going to have a primary and a chance to assign delegates. None of which was true before 1972 and pretty much all of which is true after 72. And of course, the, McGovern is on the committee that rewrites the Democratic Party rules and, oh, look at that. McGovern is the nominee in 1972. How did that happen? Oh, who can say? Uh, but the Republicans adopted very, very similar rules 
very, very shortly thereafter. And so 72 is sort of the break point between the old school primary system where Joe Kennedy could come in and buy Wisconsin for somebody, not saying who, uh, but, but now to buying Wisconsin takes a lot more uh, time and effort. And it's just as easy to win Wisconsin in a primary vote. Right. So there just haven't been that many primaries uh, since that time. And so there's a, a low number of examples that you draw on when you try to uh, uh, look for history, but that doesn't mean that there is no history. And uh, the interesting thing about the, the primary system is that what it opened up by taking uh, things out of the back room and uh, giving them to uh, not just the voters in general, but your most devoted voters for your party is it installed a tension which has ebbed and flowed over the years between the uh, desires of the party apparatus and their assessment of, of who they think they can put in the race to win and the fervent aspirations of the uh, most devoted partisans on each side. And I think uh, if there's a theme uh, this year, that's what we're seeing is that in, uh, in on both parties, the uh, it's very common, I think, uh, basically standard, for example, on the Democratic side, is there is uh, almost always a challenge between a uh, the favored uh, person of the establishment of that party and an insurgent candidate. And uh, this fantasy heartbreaker candidate almost always uh, uh, gets uh, bumped off the road. And we saw, but last time we saw a deviation from that in that the uh, Obama, who was running as the insurgent candidate, uh, had uh, other tricks up his sleeve, and he was able to make that uh, leap uh, by appealing to uh, the uh, minority voters who, at that, you know, before Iowa were kind of skittish about him, he had another card to play and, and was able to uh, sort of consolidate. But that uh, you, uh, if you have a, uh, a short experience with U.S. politics, you've got to keep in mind that that was a defiance of the norm. And so what we're looking at now is whether uh, Bernie Sanders is going to be able to uh, repeat that and to uh, follow up uh, with his uh, sort of uh, set of goals that I think appeals uh, to the hearts of a lot of uh, members of uh, that party. Uh, you know, he's definitely the guy who wants to make uh, America more Canadian and at this point in the game uh, doesn't want to focus too much on the structural obstacles to uh, making that happen. Uh, and uh, on the Republican side, you're seeing, I think, uh, uh, a weirder pattern than, than the normal pattern. Why don't you describe what the usual expected pattern of a Republican primary is? The usual expected pattern of a Republican primary matches the Democratic pattern in that there is a party establishment that basically is happy with either one or a very small number of candidates. And there is a bunch of people who are going after the true believers on the outside, uh, the, 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 the fantasy heartbreaker Republican candidates. And those are often the evangelical, although not always the evangelical candidates as well, uh, because the evangelicals uh, being primarily rural and primarily Southern don't have the access to huge amounts of money that the party establishment does. So you wind up with a, a situation Again, uh, where you have a, a guy coming up expressing the fondest hopes of uh, making America more like um, uh, you know, Lano County, Texas, uh, rather than Canada. And it turns out that doesn't it, that isn't possible in the Republican primary. And this particular time, you have a 
remarkably fractured establishment because we have, uh, you know, we, we had at the beginning of this a dozen candidates who would have been broadly acceptable to the establishment. And then you have a remarkably small number of remarkably well-funded outsider candidates. And the fact that one of them had 100% name recognition at the beginning of the campaign and has got more free media, I think, than any candidate who wasn't president in the history of American electoral politics, maybe going back to Eisenhower at least, winds up uh, having a, a not outsized, but uh, unusually sized uh, impact on the normal two-track system, so that now there is sort of a three-track system, but with the establishment being the jumbled up uh, fighty over track, as opposed to where it normally is, people who are fighting over who gets to be the uh, uh, the, the embodiment of uh, the great red hope. Right. There's almost sort of two, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk of lanes, and there's an establishment lane and an, an insurgent lane, and uh, but then there's like a big bumper car race within each of those. And so uh, on an entertainment level, it's uh, made the uh, race a lot more exciting. I don't know if it, it, it pains you as a Republican to uh, see this, if you would prefer a more uh, orderly process. But certainly, uh, you know, as you indicated earlier, the uh, populist uh, working class uh, chunk of the Republican constituency has not come from nowhere to attach itself to uh, Trump. He is using his name recognition to bring in more people who uh, uh, wouldn't necessarily be par- part of the process with, with other candidates in the, in the running. And so I guess the question we're going to look at going forward is, uh, can he really bring in uh, people who have a low attachment to the political system to vote in primaries. Uh, Iowa is sort of a case where you need a huge amount of dedication to go up and you show up at a particular hour. You have to uh, uh, actually say uh, who you're supporting. And so now we're getting to see the bigger uh, primaries coming up. And so what uh, markers would you lay for people to uh, determine whether in the future Trump is going to keep going or whether he's going to flame out? What, what symptoms should they look for either way? I think that the the real symptom that determines whether or not Trump is going to keep going is how big a check does he wind up writing his own campaign? Because right now he has run this campaign remarkably inexpensively uh, because he's getting almost his entire advertising budget is coming from the media that they're giving him free exposure. He doesn't have to buy ads. Um, he doesn't have to build a ground game because he's Donald Trump. He just shows up and says, Hey, I'm a giant celebrity. I'm going to be down at the auditorium. Come out and hear me, uh, be Donald Trump. You see the Donald Trump show. It's free. And so in the same way that you, you know, you could have, uh, like Kanye, for example, is talking about how he's going to run in 2020 and oh man, are my fingers crossed. But, um, <laughs> if Kanye showed up in New Hampshire and said, Hey, I'm going to be Kanye, uh, for two hours in an auditorium for free. Of course he'd pack that auditorium. I mean, you'd go, I'd go, we'd all go because he'd do some numbers. He'd be even more entertaining than Trump. Even if he didn't do numbers, who wouldn't want to see Kanye be Kanye for two hours? That'd be awesome. So my point being that. Uh, Trump is uh, right now been able to sort of float by on uh, uh, earned media, which is what they call free media because they're insane and um, uh, celebrity. <laughs> but at some point, you've got to have an actual ground game. You've got to have precinct captains. You've got to have people whose job it is to identify your voters as compared to Cruz or Rubio or 
uh, Jeb voters or whatever they happen to be and call them and say, you'd really like to get out and vote for us today, not go down to the hardware store, which is what as an American, you obviously would rather do. And so that ground game does take money. And uh, Trump didn't have much of one in Iowa. He has barely is a slightly bigger one, I guess, in New Hampshire, because it's a smaller state and easier to have. But if you're out in, you know, Pennsylvania, to say nothing of Texas or California, that costs real money. And Trump has so far not written a check to himself to pay for any of that. And the degree to which he's serious about it is the degree to which he self-funds. And once he starts self-funding, there's no inherent reason that he won't continue to be getting 30% of the vote forever because that seems to be about the number of people in the primaries who want Donald Trump to do something. But if he doesn't self-fund, then eventually he's going to get impatient because he's not getting the same rewards for no input and he's going to either go away, which is what the Republican establishment devoutly hopes, or he's going to play spoiler, which is what they would rather not, but he can play spoiler forever because even if he doesn't run, if he decides that, um, you know, if we nominate Kazich, let's say, uh, if he decides that Kazich was mean to him, he can just sit there and trash Kazich forever. And of course, he'll get even more coverage for doing that than um, uh, he would if he were just Donald Trump. But Donald right. Trump, former front runner, is news. And, and there are reasons to believe that he would have more fun sinking the uh, presumptive nominee than he would be being president. Well, he would have a different kind of fun, right? Yeah. I, I think I think he would enjoy being president because who wouldn't rather who wouldn't want to gold plate the White House? I ask you, but uh, but I think yes, uh, the the actual grinding work of being president is less fun than saying mean things about John Kasich. I mean, certainly I know what I would do. Right. I, I guess another thing we should dispense with is this is the time of year when there are a lot of candidates in one of the races, and so uh, the thing that would make the uh, brains of every political reporter uh, do a uh, scanner's head explosion out of pure joy would be the possibility of a brokered convention, uh, which would be a, a resurgence of old-timey uh, wheeling and dealing backstage politics, uh, which uh, would happen if uh, the uh, Republican convention rolls around without a clear delegate winner. And, or the uh, Democrats. The Democrats well, right now could still do that, although we'd have to see Bernie get... Uh, uh, more votes besides uh, white gentry liberals uh, to right. do it. It, it, se it seems less likely with two candidates. Yes, well, you know, as long as you're dreaming. <laughs> yes, well, well, while our heads are exploding in anticipatory pleasure. So, but what are let, so why don't you lay on people with the odds of there ever being a brokered convention? Well, I mean, the whole reason political parties exist is to win elections, and if you have to have a brokered election, a brokered convention in a modern frame, it's a great way to lose the election, and that. Uh, was that that lesson was brought home very strongly to the Democrats in 1968 when they had the perhaps ultimate of brokered conventions uh, and also staged an enormous riot yeah. and wound up getting Richard Nixon elected by a squeaker over Hubert Humphrey. And I don't think that it's particularly unrealistic for the Democrats to say, oh, man, if we'd controlled our election process a little better, we wouldn't have had to have that happen and we wouldn't have had Nixon. And similarly, uh, the Republican Party does not want to have a situation uh, like we had in 1976, where Ford and Reagan are visibly tearing at each other over who gets to be the nominee uh, in 1976. And uh, you wind up with a, a badly splintered convention and, and no party unity. So, Parties want to settle on someone early and move it forward, and they will put as many thumbs on the scale as they have to to make that happen. And the question, of course, 
comes when you have accidentally put too much power in the hands of people, uh, and you can't do that. <laughs> Whoop, <that's> democracy. <laughs> that, that, what we do. Ah, damn it. Why? Why? <laughs> We're sorry, George Washington. We should never have given people who haven't, don't have property the vote. We feel terrible. It's um, good on paper, man. Yeah, yeah. It, it worked for a while. But anyway, um, so the odds are always less than you think they're going to be because the party begins to coalesce even around a relatively unappetizing candidate if they have to to keep the chances of such a brokered convention down. Now, again, in a year like this year, which is the craziest election year since 1968, I think by anyone's measure, it is less easy to say that can't happen. But I think the chances of a of a brokered, which is not the right term because there aren't really brokers anymore, but a contested convention, let's say, is lower than 10%, even for the Republicans. And I think you're right that it's lower than, you know, 5 or 2% for the Democrats. But because the Democrats actually have brokers in the sense that they have super delegates who are not pledged to any candidate. They have a higher structural chance, although a lower actual chance of ever having one. Right. And because that whole system is actually in place to prevent that from happening. Exactly. To make yeah. sure that the super delegates all jump ahead of time quick enough to one side mm -hmm. in order to, to make sure that uh, nothing weird and insanely will happen because they have the historical memory more recently of having the heartbreaker candidate uh, win and then, uh, go down uh, in uh, hideous defeat. Um, so, as a Canadian, of course, I uh, I understand people's uh, desire to be more Canadian. Uh, uh, as a Republican, uh, who are you rooting for uh, among the people who are currently standing? Well, as you know, I always try to root for the most conservative governor not named Bush. <laughs> But at this point, we are almost out of conservative governors <laughs> named anything. Um, I would, I, I, I could see voting for any of the Republicans that are currently running with the obvious exception of Donald Trump. Um, because if I wanted to vote for a New York liberal, I'd vote for Hillary. But the person who I'm rooting for in the sense of who I'm wanting to go uh, as far as they possibly can is the most conservative Republican who is currently a real candidate, and that is Cruz. But again, in a world where Marco Rubio is the establishment choice, I, I'm feeling pretty good about uh, how far the establishment has had to come over to my little ill-populated quadrant of the party. So, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to maintain a sort of open mind because, as you say, nothing is remotely settled. But if, if you're asking who's my rooting interest, it's Cruz. But obviously, um, uh, uh, anyone but Jeb is a perfectly fine choice. Any Republican but Jeb, I should say. Right. Uh, and uh, when is the Illinois primary? The Illinois primary is March 15th, which is actually a little early. Um, it, things will not be settled by March 15th. Uh, so you, you no might get to cast a, a vote that makes a difference for one. I might uh, in Illinois, which almost never happens for me. Um, and again, uh, I am I am in a fortunate position in the general election uh, in that uh, – uh, I can I can uh, not vote Republican and not change the uh, outcome of the election, because if Illinois is actually in play, then we've already won the election and, and they didn't need my vote in the first place. Yes. Then the, uh, <laughs> the various uh, grand imperators with their uh, post-apocalyptic uh, gas wagons are uh, running across the land. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I assume that uh, in the Democratic uh, category that you are tenting your fingers together like Mr. Burns in hopes that the candidate who is campaigning on a large middle-class tax cut is the one who is selected? Well, 
as a and, and actually kind of legitimately as an American, not just as someone who enjoys uh, uh, a demolition derby, I kind of would like to see a Sanders Cruz election because I would like to see people actually have to pick. Uh, the American people have told the the uh, the politicians with one voice that we want tax cuts and a huge federal spending. And we want both of those and we want them right now. And we want the government out of our bedrooms and in everyone else's bedroom. And we want them, you know, <laughs> we, we just, we have been able to sort of eat everything on the menu for so long off the left side of the menu, uh, not politically, but as a diner reference, um, for so long that it would actually, I think, be good for us to sharpen the contradictions long enough for people to actually decide what side they're on and look at a competing vision of the country. Now, I don't think senators should run the country at all, but you know, we, this is a magical uh, year and we're stuck with it. That said, I am, I am right now uh, rooting for injuries as uh, the man said about a game between <laughs> Pittsburgh and Washington. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I'm sure there will be injuries. I'm yes. not sure if the people that you're hoping will be injured will be, but uh, certainly as, as you've suggested that with both parties uh, having an open seat for the presidency and, uh, the polarization of uh, American politics driving uh, each of their parties further out toward the edges of their ideology. It's going to be uh, an entertaining year, uh, although I'm sure that whatever happens will be a large number of uh, listeners who are unhappy with results. So I certainly commiserate uh, with you in advance as we move on to our next segment. when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy. What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fa fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. It's time once more for Among My Many Hats. That's the segment in which the covert self-promotion of the rest of the podcast becomes the overt self-promotion of talking about a particular project. And since it comes out uh, every month, Ken writes about stuff is a thing we most often talk about. And this time you've written a KWAS, which of course is the, uh, as I said, monthly uh, 
a small collection of gaming uh, goodness, usually gumshoe-related goodness for Palgrain Press. This time you're talking about alchemy. So what is the angle you decided to take on this enormous topic in order to distill it down into the sharp-edged missive that is a Ken Writes About Stuff segment? And I see what you did there with distill. Um, basically, the goal with alchemy was rapidly became... If I'm going to make it a magic system at all, the magic system is going to wind up taking a lot of space in the book. Uh, often you can get away with a, a shorter magic system and a, and a lot of discussion about the sort of the, the world or, or things like that. But in this one, alchemy is a big topic and it should feel big. It should feel uh, complex, if, even if the system is not, um, uh, you know, um, crazy and fiddly, but it should feel like something's going on, like a laboratory work. And so I knew that I would have to then narrow down my focus as to which alchemy, uh, Western alchemy goes back to about 200 AD and then runs down to now, although it did admittedly tail off around 1800. Um, and of course there's Chinese alchemy and Indian alchemy, uh, which are entirely other, uh, alchemical traditions. So I decided very rapidly to restrict it to just the alchemy of the early modern era. So circa, 1500 to 1700. Uh, so that way you get Agrippa, you get, um, uh, Paracelsus, you get Newton, you get sort of all the, the really sort of golden age alchemists, but you don't have to go all the way back to, um, uh, the ancient Greeks and, uh, and Gaber and the, and the Arabs. You don't have to go all the way forward into Jung and Eliade and the crazy notions that alchemy has anything to do with psychology. Uh, you can actually make it about how to do wonderful magical things with wonderful magical elements. And that was sort of my goal to focus it in. And then the only question was, am I going to have more uh, specific things that can happen as a result of the elements or the, uh, is each element going to wind up being an ability in gumshoe terms, or am I going to just have an alchemy ability that you do a bunch of different roles on like I did in Goetia. And I rapidly decided it's more fun if each of the, of the materia, each of the elements is an ability. And that is right there. That that's half the page count is just describing the 12 uh, elements of alchemy that have specific uh, gumshoe applicability. Right. And so that envisions a game in which you have multiple alchemists and you have different specialties uh, within alchemy, the way that you have different forensic scientists uh, on the team in uh, the Esoterrorists. So did you solve my problem with alchemy? Uh, being that the, the problem <laughs> well, usually... obviously. <laughs> yes. Okay, so how did you solve my problem with alchemy? What's your problem with alchemy, Rob? So the problem with alchemy is that in, at least in like a, a fantasy game, is that uh, we envision alchemy as something that the uh, alchemist goes off and does in his lab by himself and then comes back, uh, and uh, there's the expectation, I think, on the part of, I don't know whether it comes from GMs or from sort of uh, fix-it, gadgeteer sort of players, that the uh, there's a lot of time spent on stuff happening in the lab when nobody else is uh, d doing anything. How did you tackle that? Okay, there's two uh, ways that I tackled that. The first is that each of the abilities, and these abilities, the materia, are the elements. So those go from salt at the bottom of the list uh, all the way up to uh, gold at the top of the list, right? So you're going from the, the most earthly of elements all the way up to the most solar and exalted of elements. So each of those elements has four different things you can do with it. And one of those things is the base effect. And that's the sort of thing that you just do with, uh, that's that sort of for dungeon adventuring. And you can do any of those things relatively simply. It's a, I think a difficulty four test 
to do a base uh, effect. And um, uh, you can also use a preparedness test to say, oh, rather than having to do that alchemy test, I just brought along a pre-mixed bunch of salve that does this. Uh, and then the next level up is the volatile effect. And the volatile effect is a little tougher, but it can still be done outside of laboratory conditions at not much of a, of a difficulty bonus. And so the only ones that you really do have to spend time in the laboratory and do over a long period of time are the very highest levels, the awakened levels. But as it gets more and more uh, difficult to do the specific levels of effect, you have to spend either more time or be in the laboratory to do it as opposed to being able to do it out in the scene. But if you've got a really high level, you can just go ahead and um, uh, dump all those points in. If you really, really want to try a fixed alchemical effect, which is the third highest uh, between volatile and awakened uh, in the field. So all of it is at least field plausible with the exception of awakened effects. And there are plenty of things to do in the field with any of the alchemical elements so that it doesn't feel like, well, you know, when I get back to my lab, boy, then I'll have fun. You're, you're, you've always got fun available to you. So uh, this has got us all uh, hyped up as readers about uh, alchemy and running alchemy in gumshoe. Uh, what sort of campaign are we going to run uh, using these new alchemy rules? Uh, well, the standard thing to do with this would be to sort of take these rules and put them into your Scholars of Night game, where you're already playing uh, guys who are running around early modern London uh, sword fighting Spaniards. Uh, you could put it into any other sort of fantasy game, or you could run a game that focuses entirely on alchemists pretty much in any setting. You could do it certainly in, in the modern world where uh, they're wandering around using these uh, crazy alchemical powers that they've developed uh, as sort of secret magical operatives or, or thieves or something. Uh, the other possibility is you could do it in a game where uh, magic has, has, has worked and become industrialized. And what you are is sort of the alchemical CSI guys. And you're going around and investigating what's gone wrong with this magic or whatever. That could be another possibility. So, uh, what uh, sort of mysteries, uh, do, do a bunch of alchemists go around solving? Generally, the mysteries that they're going to be solving are going to be, uh, magical mysteries. It's like we, we, we know that so someone cast a spell on this guy. Uh, can we use alchemy to attempt to figure out uh, what did it or what kind of spell it was. And that will involve the GM deciding what kind of spell it was. And then the uh, alchemists having to replicate it or know, use their uh, knowledge of alchemy to, uh, to, to solve it. Uh, another possibility though, you can use alchemy uh, as a test for contagion, right? You're like, okay, I'm going to see if this uh, lead bullet and the lead that's in the gun are the same lead. And so that's a ballistics test. You can use alchemy to, um, uh, uh, to do, to do any number, to replicate any number of pre-existing gumshoe abilities. And the question is, how much do you want to dump that all onto alchemy? And how much do you want to have the alchemy actually be the, the magic use, uh, that goes into your ordinary, uh, setting, whatever it happens to be. Now, we've got a number of existing games where uh, magic is possible, uh, but they would all involve some sort of different, uh, uh, twist on alchemy. For example, in the world of the esoterrorists, they're, the only efficacious magic, uh, which depends on your gathering uh, people's sense of fear and cognitive dissonance and uh, uh, then sending it through the membrane to the demon realm known as the outer dark, uh, is basically a summoning. So that in that world, you would have to cast alchemy as uh, something that seems to be doing a whole bunch of other stuff, but is really just a front operation for the various demons who are trying to attract you to... Uh, summon them so that they might be 
pushing little effects through the world. And, uh, you know, you may seem to be transputing a little bit of, uh, uh, lead into gold, but, uh, you know, it's a Ponzi scheme, you know, what, why would they, they've obviously picked the most attractive form of magic that people want to do and then use that to kind of, uh, uh suck you in and then slowly turn you into an, uh, esoterist in the, uh, Lovecraftian realm. Again, there's this suggestion, uh, at least in purist, uh, Lovecraft rather than uh, a pulp take on Lovecraft that they're, they're really the only magic in the world is about accessing the horrific mind-bending uh, realities of the uh, uh, old ones, Cthulhu and company. How would you uh, use alchemy in a Trail of Cthulhu game? In Trail, what you would want to have is uh, that the alchemy, because again, the one of the conceits of, of the Cthulhu mythos is that no human science is any smarter about the universe than any other human science. That with, uh, w- with medieval uh, witchcraft, you can get to tensor calculus with um uh alchemy you can understand so much about the world that you wind up writing down the necronomicon so alchemy is not an illegitimate study but it's misunderstood when you are working with these elements and you're sort of engaging in the sort of um uh, of specific operations with them that's required uh your elements are, are vibrating at at uh non- standard frequencies they're they're uh, emitting a signature into another dimension and so uh, the, an arrangement of gold and copper and uh, silver nitrate means nothing on earth but in this other dimension it means something in the same way that an arrangement of stones on sentinel hill means nothing on earth but in yog sothoth's dimension it means come here and have uh, sex with my daughter and so you have different uh, notions that the alchemy is is literally sending a signature out into space or out into the other dimensions and the effect is coming through this alchemical operation because the alchemical operation is um uh is actually a rote or a hack of the universe and you might want to tie it with for example the Durlethian notion of an elemental cosmos where Cthulhu is elemental water and uh, Nirlathotep is elemental earth and such you can certainly uh, tie alchemy into that very easily you could do a trail of Cthulhu game set in um, uh, early modern Europe where alchemy is just straight up science and the fact that it is magic is an evidence that the more you understand about science the more you're destroying the fabric of reality so that uh, when you, um, use, uh, A's Cyprium to blend two materials together, you're actually creating a interdimensional, uh, portal in which the two materials flow into one another. You're altering physical law in that spot and play that for terror as opposed to for wonder, uh, like, uh, fantasy does. Um, or you can simply have alchemy be one set of lores that you can get out of the Necronomicon and the cost of learning alchemy is that you've also exposed yourself to not just, you know, mercury poisoning, but also infestation by Shan or Mygo or something. But because as you're practicing it, you're uh, actually building Biaki out of the waste metals and gases you're giving off, that kind of thing. Now, uh, if a mystery has an alchemical MacGuffin, the obvious choice is the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, but we're not about the obvious choice here on the podcast. So what is the second coolest MacGuffin you can think of in an alchemy-based uh, gumshoe game. Well, I'm glad you asked because each of the elements that I made up has its own MacGuffin. 
I, I thought of that on purpose. So, uh, salt has the sal sapiente, the salt of wisdom. Uh, it gives you knowledge of all languages, including the beasts and the birds. Vitriol gives you the flying ointment. Also makes you a better tweeter. Also makes you a better tweeter. Um, you can make the alkahest, obviously. That's a classic, uh, thing where it, um, uh, it, it, it burns, it melts through everything. Um, you can make, uh, the Gehenical fire out of sulfur. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of different, uh, possibilities as, as not just the philosopher's stone, but also, but also things like, um, uh, the, the uh, making a moon child or homunculuses or something. Those are all alchemical operations. Well, uh, one of the rules of the podcast is as soon as we have the threat of homunculi uh, coming in and wrecking the recording quality that we have to move on to another segment. So, uh, let's, uh, I see a, a beautiful commercial coming. Let's travel through that to our final segment of this episode. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly. Or Tales from Failed Anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. The whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gear tell us we once more entered the proximity of Ken's time machine. That, of course, is the conveyance that Ken uses to go back in time at the behest of Time Incorporated, his uh, shadowy bosses with their uh, nebulous agenda, and uh, alter, bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate the time stream. And uh, this time, once again, uh, at the behest of listener Adam Waxman, we're looking not at a potential thing that you are thinking of doing, but we're going to find out why you did something you already done did, and that is to decide that the U.S. should have only two major political parties. Uh, so I guess that's a two-parter, uh, which is uh, uh, why uh, is that a thing? And then the second part later on we'll get to is how did you do it? So why is it a thing? It's a thing because if you have more political parties, you have a better better chance of political chaos or political paralysis. Uh, the small party winds up with an outsized influence and uh, you wind up deforming uh, the democratic process. You can look, for example, at the Parliament of Israel, where the tiny ultra-religious parties get a veto on everything that the government does because they can vote as a bloc with one of the other uh, major party in Parliament, in the Knesset, and 
uh, wind up derailing uh, the entire government. Uh, you can look at a similar effect happens in the Italian parliament uh, to a lesser extent in the French parliament. And in many other countries that have parliamentary systems, you wind up with a small party that can outsizedly affect uh, because it can go either way because it's, ideology is so uh, orthogonal to the regular ideology of the parliament, it doesn't care who it aligns with. It's not like in Congress, where the Tea Party Republicans may be very, very extreme politically, but they can't legitimately say, if you don't do what we want, we're going to go ally with Nancy Pelosi and make her speaker, because that would never happen. Uh, they're they're uh, just dedicated to changing the coloration of their own party, as opposed to uh, paralyzing the, uh, the the process entirely, or uh, worse yet, actually violating the democratic intent of the, of the people who voted in a majority for a reason, and then it turns out that majority can fall apart because someone was wrong on Welsh independence or something equally irrelevant to the larger body politic. Right, and uh, because I haven't mentioned Canada enough this episode, God forbid. Um, our experience with third parties has been that they tend to have less maneuvering room, uh, either uh, because they are uh, more interested in being ideologically pure than wielding power, as is the case with the NDP, or because they're locked into an, another uh, agenda that doesn't let them negotiate too much, like the Bloc Québécois, which was the Quebec Nationalist Party that we had in the uh, federal uh, parliament in large numbers for a while. But uh, the American system is not a parliamentary system. And uh, is there a reason why the uh, presidential system, with all of its many veto points, uh, has an even greater need for a uh, two-party system? Um, I think that the reason that... I, I don't even know that there's necessarily a greater need for it, but I think that the practical effect of the American system has been to amplify the consensus as opposed to create radical factionalism. Now, that doesn't always hold, obviously. You do get this points, uh, for example, the Civil War, where things break down a bit. But by and large, the existence of two large parties uh, drives national consensus and sectional consensus in a way that having a bunch of fragmented parties doesn't. And in a uh, system that, as you accurately uh, note, is intended to uh, seize up already, having more things seize up is not necessarily um, going to uh, going to speed the plow. So what you want is. Uh, the system to seize up as it was designed, but once it starts rolling, it's rolling as designed. Uh, you know, all of your seize points are, are built in by James Madison, and he doesn't want a bunch of people who are demanding uh, independence for Kentucky or something to, uh, to throw the system off. Now, as an outsider who rarely time travels, it seems to me that the thing that at least maintains uh, the uh, two-party system in the U.S. is the fact that the parties have a larger role in administering the electoral system than they do elsewhere, where there aren't uh, sort of arm's length agencies that run all that stuff. In uh, the U.S., they have a, a piece of the pie that they're going to make sure nobody else gets a hold of. Uh, is that what you uh, ensured would happen when you went back in time to ensure that it would happen? It turns out that I don't have to ensure anything, that the natural course of history in America uh, because the first political dispute was between people who agreed with George Washington and people who didn't agree with George Washington, or actually before that, people who agreed with the Constitution and disagreed with the Constitution, but then that mapped fairly closely onto people who agreed and disagreed with George Washington, which once Washington left became people who thought John Adams should be president. And you'll note that the people in favor of each 
half of that is dropping um, uh, until suddenly uh, Thomas Jefferson becomes president in 1800. But it always was presented as yes, no. There was never a broad spectrum of possibility because the broad spectrum of possibility was brought into the process very early on and used to hammer out the constitutional convention so that virtually everyone who might have created a locus of party opinion got bought off or bought in very, very early in the process. Now, the method of party administration of elections, of course, goes to the fact that every electoral position is honestly a political post, right? I mean, you can't have a non-elected member of government in a democracy. Uh, it, it would just make no sense. So even if you, if in some magical world where judges administered the elections, they would rapidly wind up politicizing the judicial branch because they would be saying you're legitimate and you're not legitimate versus letting the people who are already political officials administer the elections. Um, so that's sort of an organic outgrowth and it's a further organic outgrowth of the fact that America is an enormous country and it can't run everything from a small uh, bureaucracy in London or Paris the way that other industrial democracies can. So because our democracy grew up with the country uh, almost organically as people would go out onto the prairies and set up their own towns and set up their own uh, governments, they would wind up obviously setting up these electoral authorities that would be trusted but partisan in the sense that they were known to be Republicans or Democrats, but only in relatively rare cases. Uh, and I'm thinking the urban machines or uh, the South's um, uh, plantation uh, voting structures, are they actually uh, uh, so corrupt as to deform the process? So the general run of America has always been to be partisan. The general run of America has always been to be democratic and if you're going to have both of those things, you're going to wind up with a partisan political process, right? So uh, are you basically saying that your time travel here involved time traveling to a grocery store to get some dip and then just going back and hanging out with Virgil? There's a good there's a good part of that. I do have some things in my quiver. One of the things that was important to do, for example, is, is to prevent the early founding era from splintering into more than two parties. And so this is something that I have in my uh, holster to undo, but James Otis, who is one of the most libertarian of the founding fathers was hit on the head by a, uh, the hated British by um, uh, John Robinson. Uh, he was a tax collector. So he was the hatedest of the hated British and he smacked him in the head in 1769. And, and the James Otis between tax collectors and libertarians goes back a ways, goes back a ways. It does. Uh, and James Otis's uh, previously charmingly erratic behavior became outright crazy behavior. And he was forced to retire from political life and was then uh, as an extra bonus hit by lightning in 1783. So, if I need to, I can reverse the lightning and remove the British and I can have a, uh, an even more libertarian body of political opinion in the revolution. Similarly, Aaron Burr, it's very important that I convince the nation that Alexander Hamilton deloped, that he did not shoot at Aaron Burr in the duel so that Aaron Burr would become a hissing and a byword as opposed to a possible source of extremely statist, uh, Bonapartist ideology in uh, the American um, uh, system. Although Burr himself was not politically a Bonapartist, he was certainly not the kind of guy who, if other people had been Bonapartist around him, would have had the strength of character to say, oh, no, no, uh, don't make me dictator for life. That would be wrong. So blackening further Burr's reputation and uh, 
uh, clonking James Otis on the head are the ways that I sort of kept things on the uh, straight and middle. But if I need to, I can go back and swap out James Otis for one of the other founding fathers and see what happens. So uh, if Time Incorporated had given you the opposite assignment, how would you uh, intervene to uh, assure a multiplicity of uh, parties in America? That trick involves a great deal of making people stubborner. So, for example, when the Whig Party uh, gets replaced by the Republican Party, the Whig Party, by and large, recognizes that all of the patronage is going to come out of the Republicans, and they just all switch over. But there were people who had uh, power in the Whig Party who could perhaps have prevented that. And so uh, you could wind up creating a uh, a rump Whig Party, for example, that then acts as a propertied uh upper class party in the East as against the more uh, populist Republican party in the Midwest. And you could similarly have uh, the populist party, the actual populist party. Uh, you, if you simply say that they can't make a bunch of corrupt bargains with Democrats, we'll sell them down the river and um, say uh, uh, <laughs> plus la change. Um, the, then the populist party could perhaps have stuck around. And the goal there would be to simply provide enough uh, social reinforcement to leaders of a populist party that the fact that they've only got a few congressmen doesn't affect them back in Nebraska or wherever else. And the final thing that would probably strengthen American parties, uh, or at least uh, regional factions is to weaken the federal government. So if you undo Woodrow Wilson, which is something that I've got a, an open ticket on a lot, <laughs> you, uh, you, you encourage local and regional parties to remain a factor in a way that you don't if Every, everything depends on did you elect a president, did you elect a senator, did you elect a congressman? Uh, in, in America, there are many third, le uh, third parties or close to third parties at a state level that have a function. There's a conservative party in New York that actually, uh, held the balance of power for a good, uh, long time until it was finally, um, uh, uh, sidelined by the Republicans. Similarly, the, there was a labor party, I think, in, in Minnesota that eventually joined with the Democrats because uh, the, the, the Democrats once more subsumed that populist uh, fervor. But you could keep those alive at a state level in a way that you can't keep them alive in a strong federal system. So once my eliminate Woodrow Wilson from the time stream uh, ticket is open, then we may see a broader spectrum of local parties, even if the national parties remain uh, basically uh, uh, binary, or you wind up electing someone who then caucuses with one of the main parties, a la uh, Bernie Sanders, who was a socialist, but he caucused with the Democrats. I don't know if he's a Democrat now, but he was, he, he ran as a, as a socialist or as an independent in Vermont. So, uh, I guess this, uh, closes out the easiest Ken's time machine assignment, uh, ever. Well, they can't all be stop World War One. Uh, no, not if we're taking, uh, requests from the audience. I, I think it's time for us to get in the time machine and, uh, that that dip sounded awful good. I think I might uh, go with you. And it is that good means, dip. Uh, it was made. Yeah. It was made by Brulat Savaran himself. There we go. Well, uh, that's that's a mission uh, after my own heart, and so therefore we'll have to uh, bid adieu, as it were, to our listeners for another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Brass. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Get familiar with our donate button at Ken and Robin Talk about stuff .com. 
Join such luminaries of patronage as... Fred Kish. Watch out for our Patreon, whose ducks are ever more rapidly coming into ever closer alignment. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>